morning church today's reading is taken from mark chapter 2 verse 13 to 22 he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and as he was teaching them and as he passed by he saw levi the son of alphaeus sitting at the tax booth and he said to him follow me and he rose and followed him And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I come not to call the righteous, but sinners." Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away. Sorry, the, te- the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I do hope that you have your Bibles open in front of you, either on your cell phone or an iPad or perhaps a Bible. It really will be a great, great help to me if you do have your Bibles open in front of you. As you well know, my job is to teach the Word of God and to open up God's Word. So uh, without the Bible in front of you, uh, you're probably going to find it quite difficult to follow me. You'll probably find it quite difficult to follow me in any event, but anyway, I think the Bible will help. Well, let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we are in need of your Spirit and your Word and your presence. We are so well aware of that this morning. As we've sung of your greatness and your majesty and your grace and your salvation, we are so conscious that we are in deep need of God's hand upon us. And we do pray, Lord, that as we meet under your word, under your authority, that we may meet with God, that he may touch us, And he may draw us to himself. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. 
Now, as you know, we've been working through Mark's gospel over the last uh, four weeks, and uh, what we've really discovered is that Jesus is unconventional. Remember in Mark chapter 1, instead of avoiding the leper, he touches the leper. Remember in Mark chapter 2, instead of healing the paralyzed man, he forgives the paralyzed man. Here in our passage this morning, especially from verse 13 to verse 17, instead of supporting the good guys, he supports the bad guys, the sinners. There's no mistaking the scandal of Jesus, unconventional Jesus. Now, we're going to divide our passage into two headings. Uh, The one is the identity of the disciples of Christ, and secondly, the identity of Christ. So those will be our two broad headings as we look at this unconventional man, Jesus. And uh, we'll look at those two headings to unpack this passage. But let me first go down one side road. And once again, I want to look at the question, who is John Mark? Now, we've already seen, yes, I have touched on this before, but there's more. We've already seen that uh, John Mark appears in the book of Acts. His mother was Mary, and uh, the headquarters of the early church was actually in their home in Jerusalem. Uh, the, first, the first church in Christendom met in the home of Mary and John Mark. So John Mark really was at the center of things. We've already seen how John Mark uh, was an apprentice to Barnabas and Saul. Saul became Paul on their first missionary journey, and how John Mark bombed out. And then how John Mark was restored to become a valuable member of the leadership team in the early church. We've already seen that John Mark uh, was really the secretary or the scribe of the Apostle Peter, And that what we have here in front of us in this gospel are the eyewitness accounts of the Apostle Peter. And John Mark was the scribe writing down what he heard from from Peter. In fact, one of the historians suggests that uh, this is not just an eyewitness record of the Apostle Peter. It's actually a record of the sermons of Peter, which would be quite remarkable. The point I want to bring out this morning, which has fascinated me for a couple of years of reading is that there is some strong evidence, historical evidence, that John Mark was actually born in Africa, in Cyrene, in Libya, that he was eventually martyred in Alexandria, in Egypt, having been the first evangelist, the first bishop of Africa, the bishop of Alexandria. Let me quickly show you the map. There will be a map on the screen, and it will just quickly show you uh, where we are. So... Um, over there is Palestine, Jerusalem. That's where we met John Mark in Acts 12, 13, 14, 15. Uh, you meet John Mark, but actually he was born. So this is North Africa. This is the Mediterranean. Uh, there you have uh, Turkey. You have Europe. Um, and the center of gravity of the first three centuries of the Christian church was this area. It was, it was southern Europe, Turkey, and northern Africa. That was the center of gravity of the early church, the first three centuries of the church. We we reckon the historical evidence is that John Mark was born in Cyrene, which is in Libya, and then he died in Alexandria, which is in Egypt. So that just gave you some idea of the early church, the first 300 years, 
Um, and the center, of course, started in Jerusalem, but then it spread all over, including northern Africa. Now, for the historical boffs amongst us, uh, there are clear references of John Mark in Africa, doing ministry in Africa, uh, from many of the early church fathers like Eusebius Clement Oregon. Thomas Oden, uh, who was an expert in early African Christianity, he had a PhD from Yale, he co-authored one or two books with J.I. Packer. In one of his many books called The African Memory of Mark, he makes exactly this point for an African John Mark. So, as we've just seen, North Africa was part of the Roman Empire for over 500 years. And what happened from time to time, certainly from the time of 300 BC, is that when there were wars, when there was trouble in Palestine, Jews would flee to North Africa, including Egypt and Libya. And consequently, you had large Jewish populations in North Africa. At one stage, it was estimated that that there were over 100,000 Jews living in Cyrene, in Libya. So according to the evidence, John Mark's family fled 300 years before the birth of Christ to Libya, where they settled. And like Jewish communities, as they always do, they were well-educated, they were farmers, they were successful tradesmen. Being Jewish, they spoke Hebrew. Being tradesmen, they spoke uh, Greek and Latin. Being Libyans, they spoke Berber. Around the birth of Christ, around the time of the birth of Christ, the family, after 300 years, moved back to Palestine, back to Jerusalem, as did many other Jewish people from Cyrene, because Cyrene is quite dominant in the New Testament. Perhaps you didn't pick it up. Remember in Mark chapter 15, it was Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Christ with his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. In Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost... When Jews from all over the world met in Jerusalem, mention is made specifically that there were people from Egypt and from Libya with special mention of Cyrene. In Acts chapter 11, we come across Cyrenian missionaries and evangelists. Then Acts 12 to 15, we have John Mark and Mary. And then after the establishment of the early church in Jerusalem, in Israel, into the Mediterranean area, Uh, into North Africa. There's strong evidence that John Mark was the key evangelist to North Africa and eventually became the first bishop of Africa. And he became the bishop of Alexandria, where he was martyred. He was killed for his faith, the faith that we are studying here in Mark's gospel. Evidently, anti-Christian mobs seized him, A.D. 62, tied a rope around his neck, And horses dragged him through the streets until he died. So the author of Mark's gospel actually died because he wouldn't deny the truth of what he had written here in his gospel. I can't tell you how excited I get to think that quite probably John Mark was an African and at the very least was the first evangelist to Africa, the first bishop in Africa, and died for his faith in Africa. Well, let's have a look. That's the side road. Let's look at our first principle. 
the identity of the disciples of Christ. So let me read again from verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, some of you may remember that I preached on this passage on Christmas Day last year. Um, So obviously there'll be some repetition because the passage doesn't change. But I don't actually expect anyone to remember my sermons in any event. So just just by the way, I think it is a Christmas passage because at Christmas time we remember the incarnation of God, the coming of Christ. And Jesus tells us, notice there verse 17, precisely why he came. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, in the Bible, uh, the reference to sinners is normally anyone who lives without reference to God. Anyone who has no relationship with God. Anyone who doesn't live under the authority of God. And Levi, verse 13, is really exhibit A. So you've noticed he was a tax collector. Now, let me give you some background. This will be well known to many of you, but there may be someone new to our church or new to the Bible. In our culture, working for SARS, um, well, there's nothing wrong to work for SARS. In fact, it's a critical function in our country. But in those days in Palestine, tax collectors were really regarded as the lowest of the low. Jews were living under the colonization of the Roman Empire, who they obviously hated. Romans collected taxes through Jewish middlemen like Levi. In actual fact, they would buy a franchise over a certain geographical area. In Palestine, Jews like Levi were absolutely hated, absolutely despised. They were, col- they were collecting taxes from their own people, their own Jewish people, to give to their oppressors. So they were seen as sellouts. They were seen as traitors, as impimpi. Added to that, the Roman system of taxation depended on graft, on greed, on bribery. It was systemic corruption. And it obviously attracted those kinds of people. So, of course, Levi, like any other Palestinian tax collector, would collect taxes for the Romans and taxes for his pocket. So they were hated. They were despised. Notice verse 16. The religious leaders were, were disgusted, disgusted that Jesus was having a meal with someone like Levi. Verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They were hated. In fact, at the time of Christ, the first century, tax collectors like Levi were expelled from the synagogue. They weren't allowed to enter. They were a disgrace to their family. If you were touched by a tax collector, you would be considered ritually unclean, and your home would be seen as unclean. 
You couldn't receive, no Jew could receive money or a donation or a gift from a tax collector because it was unclean money. Now, what is fascinating is that in chapter 3, we'll meet one of, one of the other disciples of Jesus. He had 12. And this Levi, whose other name was Matthew, who actually wrote the Gospel of Matthew, was one of the 12. But another one of the 12 was someone called Simon, called the Zealot. Simon was a freedom fighter, a Jewish freedom fighter against the Romans. So you can imagine the chemistry between Levi the impimpi, the sellout, and Simon, the zealot, the freedom fighter. In fact, they, Simon and the zealots would regard people like Levi as committing acts of treason. Now, I can imagine in the first couple of weeks when the 12 were with Jesus on the road, if I was Levi, I would sleep with one eye open because you don't know when Simon's going to stick a knife in your back. It's fascinating when you look at the makeup of the 12 disciples. Now, it's to such a person like Levi, everyone hated him. He was hated. It was a person like this that Jesus has a party. He has an intimate meal. He spends quality time, not only with Levi, but with his mates, with his, with his, with his brothers in crime, his partners in crime. No mistaking the scandal of Jesus. No mistaking the scandal of the gospel. Let me, try and, let me try and illustrate the shock it would have been to the Jewish people, Jesus having this meal with Levi. If you saw me at the Mug and Bean having, having coffee with a notable drunk from Midrand, and I won't mention any names, um, you, would, you would probably say, well, isn't that lovely that our pastor is doing evangelism and he's reaching out to people like this? But imagine if you saw me having a meal at the Mug and Bean with the Gupta brothers, with AJ and Atul and Tony, or perhaps the Watson brothers, and you saw me laughing and joking and enjoying the meal with them. I'm sure you would say, well, I'm not sure about our pastor anymore. Isn't he mixing with the wrong crowd? What if you what if you heard me say to Julius on a cell phone, Julius, we really must have tea next weekend? Wouldn't it be lovely if we had tea? And why don't you bring Jacob? Or perhaps bring Donald? What if you saw me joking and laughing and and enjoying a meal with Grace Mugabe? Or PW Buta? And you overheard me say to them, you know, we must do this again. Well, I've probably offended everyone by now, but I've done it equally. I'm an equality offender. You see, that's exactly what Jesus is doing when he says to Levi, follow me. It's a scandal. Now, I, I presume that there are probably two kinds of people here this morning watching on church at home. Perhaps there's someone who says, well, I'm probably worse than Levi. I don't think Jesus would ever call me. I really don't think I'm good enough. Probably I need to clean up my act before I meet up with Jesus. 
In fact, I can only go to God if I've sorted out my temper and my anger, my racism. I think I can only go to God if I've cleaned up how I hurt people and hate people. I think I can only go to Jesus when I've stopped sleeping around, stopped looking at pornography, stopped cheating. Perhaps I'll never get to Jesus. Perhaps I'll never be good enough for him. And Mark says to us, you've actually got it totally wrong. Totally wrong. The scandal of Jesus is that he says to Levi, follow me now. No preconditions. No ifs or buts. No T's and C's. I love you as you are. Come, follow me now. A colleague of mine in the UK, Ian Garrett, tells of his Irish grandmother who lived to over 100 years of age. And um, she had such a traditional respect. You know how they had that in the old days of medical doctors? That when she was sick and her family said to her, you must go to the doctor, she would say, no, I can't. I can't go to him in a state like this. Well, Jesus says, come. doesn't matter what state you're in. I've come for the sick, not the healthy. I've come for sinners, not the righteous. Or perhaps there's a second person I'm speaking to who's, who's more your solid citizen. Perhaps you're a religious type. You wouldn't actually call yourself a sinner. You wouldn't use that terminology. You would say, well, I'm only human. I'm not perfect. But I'm actually all right, Martin. I'm actually here this morning uh, under duress. I'm watching because it's the right thing to do. That's what you do. It's what my family wants me to do. Question, do you think that you need a savior? Ask yourself that. Do you need a savior? If the answer is no, it's probably because you don't think of yourself as a sinner. If you think you have no real need of a savior, it's because you have no real conviction of sin, personal sin. And if you have no conviction of personal sin, you are in much deeper trouble than what you ever imagined. Imagine a, a medical doctor traveling deep into the jungle with a COVID vaccine to an isolated tribe. They've been hugely affected by the virus. The variant has been diagnosed. The vaccines have been flown in from India. The meds are prepared. It's available. It's free. But tragically, the people say, no thanks. We don't need a vaccine. In fact, we'll make our own vaccine. What a tragedy. But that's where the Pharisees were. That's where you may be thinking that you're spiritually healthy. By the way, says Jesus, the human race is not, not, not divided into two groups, those who are good enough for Jesus and those who aren't. No. You're all the same. You're all sick. The symptoms are different, but you're all sick. You're all terminal. You all have ICU. The only, you're all in ICU. The only difference is that some of you know that you're sick and some of you don't. Just a quick side road before we go to our second principle. It's quite striking here in these opening chapters of Mark's gospel that it's not the disciples of Jesus, but the enemies of Jesus who most clearly understand who he is. 
Remember in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, it's an evil spirit. It's a demon who says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It wasn't the disciples. No, it was an evil spirit. It was a demon. Here in Mark chapter 2, it's the Pharisees who say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? In Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, it says he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So for the Pharisees, calling Jesus a friend of sinners is a scandal. But for those of us who are sinners, and we know we sinners, it's a phrase of unspeakable comfort. (laughs) He's a friend of sinners. Imagine, Jesus is your friend. You call him your friend. And even more Even more wonderful, he calls you his friend. I think most of us have at least one friend we feel safe with, someone who knows us, someone who gets you, someone who accepts you. Whether you do the right thing or the wrong thing, they still accept you. They're still your friend. And yet most of us would admit that even with our best friends, we don't feel comfortable to indulge or divulge absolutely everything. It's too embarrassing, I think. All our human friendships have a limit to what they can withstand. But what if there were a friend with no limit, like Jesus? Whether clean or unclean, he still wants us to come to him. Whether guilty or revolting, he still calls us his friend. Obviously, he's our ruler. Obviously, he's our... our authority, but he's not ashamed to call you and me his friend. In fact, it's quite unbelievable. You see, it's one thing for me to say that Jesus is my friend. It's quite another for Jesus to say, Martin is my friend. Meet Martin, he says. He's my friend. I mean, that's amazing. Extraordinary. He knows the pain of being lonely, but he will never abandon you. He knows the agony of being betrayed by a friend, but he will never betray you. He knows the anguish of being God-forsaken, but he will never forsake you. The Pharisees say, what a scandal. Jesus, the friend of sinners, we say, what a miracle. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Meet Martin, he says. He's my friend. Amazing. Let's have a look at the identity of Christ. We've looked at the identity of the disciples of Christ And that gives us such hope, doesn't it? Now let's have a look at the identity of Christ from verse 18. Let me read again. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. 
No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, let me first just state the obvious. The passage is not teaching about fasting, whether Christians should fast or not. The passage is not teaching about alcohol, whether Christians should drink alcohol or not. The passage is not teaching about fabrics or sewing or clothing. No, it's teaching about the identity of Christ. In fact, what Jesus says about his identity in this passage and the next two passages is so dramatic that the religious leaders want to destroy him and kill him by chapter 3, verse 6. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 6. After this passage and the next two passages, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let's go back to the fasting. The Pharisees said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The background here is that Judaism required Jews to fast one day per year, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, Yom Kippur. It was a 24-hour fast, but only one day per year. That was the requirement. The Pharisees, however, being OTT when it came to religion, they fasted two days per week, Mondays and Thursdays. It was a sign of their piety, of their religious commitment. The rabbis used to call fasting an affliction of the soul, mainly, I think, to to kind of satisfy their self-righteousness, their piety. In some way, their fasting, their affliction helped them to earn their way to heaven. That's religion, by the way. Religion is always man's effort to reach God. Man's effort to earn his salvation. Or man's effort to try and twist God's arm. Before Martin Luther, who was instrumental in bringing about the Reformation in the 1500s, before he understood that salvation was by grace and not by works, he tried to pay for his sins. He was a monk. One author said, I quote, as a young monk, Luther was obsessed with atoning for his own sins. He tried to remember every sin that his mind would cover up. On at least one occasion, he confessed for six hours straight. He went to great lengths to punish himself. This ranged from extreme self-denial like fasting to self-flagellation, which means beating yourself. One such punishment was to lie in the snow through the night at the height of winter, and that's in Germany. All to try and atone for his sins. That's religion. It's a man's effort to try and win salvation from God. So verse 18, the Pharisees, who were very religious, make this cutting, sarcastic uh, question. The tone is, is dripping with sarcasm. If you and your disciples want us to take you seriously, you'd, you'd better pay more attention to your fasting protocol. And Jesus answers, verse 19. Can the wedding feast fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Well, of course, verse 19, Jesus says, what a wet blanket, what a nerd you are if you fast at your daughter's wedding. I mean, (laughs) you really, I mean, that's absurd, isn't it? In fact, a wedding in a Jewish village or town would last seven days if you were a virgin bride. It would last three days if you were a remarried widow. In our culture, a white wedding is normally about eight hours, ten hours. At least a black wedding is two days. Well, in Israeli culture, it was seven days. Imagine the expense. And like all weddings, there's no lack of food and drink and music and dancing and fun. The only responsibility of guests was to enjoy. Any thought of fasting was out of the question. Well, says Jesus, verse 19, the disciples aren't fasting. Why? Because the bridegroom is here. He's arrived. It's a wedding feast. It's a wedding banquet. Now, that's a most dramatic statement, which the Pharisees would have understood. Because you'll know from the Old Testament that the Old Testament prophets often spoke about God as the bridegroom of Israel. Israel was his bride. Just listen to these statements. Hosea chapter 2, verse 16. In that day, declares the Lord, you will no longer call me master, you will call me my husband. Isaiah 62, verse 5, as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Jeremiah chapter 2, I remembered the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me. He's talking about Israel, his bride. But now you have defiled my land. Under every spreading tree you lay down as a prostitute. You said, I love foreign gods and go after them. So God, the bridegroom, is angry, he's furious, he's heartbroken because his dearest bride, Israel, have found other lovers. At the time of Jesus, the Pharisees saw fasting as a way to speed up the coming of the Messiah. So what Jesus says here in verse 19 is no need to fast because the Messiah has arrived. You don't need to speed it up. As we've just seen with the Old Testament imagery, Describing God as the bridegroom, the husband of Israel, when Jesus describes himself as the bridegroom, he's actually saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the long-awaited king. I'm God in the flesh. So it's quite obvious this passage is not about fasting, but about identity, the identity of Jesus as Messiah, as God in the flesh. That's why chapter 3, verse 6 is no surprise that the Pharisees want to destroy him. Jesus is claiming to be God, and they understand that. They want to destroy him, which they eventually do. And Jesus, of course, knows the story, or he knows how the story will end, which is why he says, verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Remember last week we looked at the, at the healing, the forgiveness of the paralyzed man, and we looked at the dark side of forgiveness. For the paralyzed man, forgiveness was free, but someone had to pay for it. So Christ paid, not only by being paralyzed on the cross, but by dying on the cross. Now in this passage, the wedding feast is free, the food and drink is free, 
But someone had to pay for it. And here in verse 20, Jesus gives the first hint of his death. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from you. And as we all know, he paid with his life. He paid with his blood. My dear friends, the greatest issue of the Christian faith is not science and miracles. It's not creation and evolution. It's not sexual ethics and the Bible. It's not the misuse of the Bible by prosperity preachers. Those are all important issues. But the greatest issue of the Christian faith is the identity of Jesus. That is the greatest issue. If he wasn't God, you might as well switch off your church at home. Go and mow the lawn. Take the dogs for a walk. Watch some sport. But if he is a God, it changes everything. Everything. Absolutely everything. It means that all his words are true. It means that there is real forgiveness and real hope. It means that there's a real heaven and a real hell. It means that there's a real God who really loves us and who really holds us accountable. It is the greatest issue that you and I have to face. Who is Jesus? Lastly, let's quickly have a look at verse 21 to 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So there are two pictures here, two domestic pictures. The first, don't put a patch of new cloth on an old garment. Now, I would know nothing about that, but many of you would. Don't put a piece of new cloth on an old garment, because when you wash it, the new patch will shrink, and it will tear the garment. The second, don't put new sparkling wine into old wineskins. New fermenting wine will burst the old wineskins, and you will ruin both, both the wineskin and the new wine. So the new patch is incompatible with the old garment. The new wine is incompatible with the old wineskin. They're mutually exclusive. And Jesus is saying, I'm the new patch. I'm the new wine. And we need to get rid of the old template. So what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is he's saying, I'm not here to rejuvenate Judaism, to give it a new image, a new coat of paint, a facelift, a rebranding. No, we need to start again. We need to overhaul the whole thing. New wine needs new wineskin, and I'm the new wine. And Jesus says to you, I'm not here to rejuvenate your life, give you a new image, a facelift, a new coat of paint, give you a leg up. No, you need to start again. We need an overall, a new birth. New wine needs new wineskin, and I'm the new wine. You see, if Jesus is God, it changes everything, absolutely everything. Now, let me close and suggest that there are possibly three kinds of people here in the auditorium this morning or listening on church at home, 
three kinds of people, and the question is, which are you, and which do you want to be? So let me go to the whiteboard and uh, share with you those three kinds of people, and you need to think to yourself, which one am I, and which one do I want to be? All right, here's the first person, and let's imagine that your life is like a house, and there are different rooms in your house, each room depicting some major area of your life. So there's your life, it's like a house, and here's the first kind of person, there's, there's your work, uh, there's your family, there's your sport or your hobbies, there's your relationships, there's your money. And, of course, right in the middle, there's me. That's your house. That's your life. And, by the way, you do believe in God. He is there. You have a general belief in God. But he's really not involved, except when you're in trouble. Of course, then, <laughs> then you call upon him. But otherwise, he's not involved because he's really quite irrelevant. And I think most people, many people, most people in our country would claim to be Christians, claim to believe in God, but actually he has no real involvement in their daily lives. There's the first kind of person. Here's the second kind of person who's much more churched, much more religious. There's their work, there's their family, there's their relationships, there's their money, there's me. And you know what is so good? God is part of my life. You know, God is, there to, God is there to help me. God's involved in my life. Whenever I have a need, whenever I have a problem, I call upon God. God is there to help me, to bless me, to give me a leg up. I believe in God. It's so important, you know, for him to help me with my life and my dreams and my hopes. I think many church people are like that. Jesus says, no, 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 you need a new wineskin. New wine needs a new wineskin. Here is Levi after Jesus had called him. Things have changed. There's his family. There's his work. There's his money. There's his relationships. Of course, there's me. But right at the center now is God. It's a new template. It's a new wineskin. It's no longer about me. It's no longer about my hopes and dreams. No, it's about God. Levi says, Jesus, follow me. Stop following yourself. Stop following your own dreams, your own hopes, your own agenda. Follow me. A new template. New wineskins. So, of course, the question is, which person are you? Which person do you want to be? Jesus says to Levi, follow me, I want to be your friend. Jesus says to you, follow me, 
I want to be your friend. Now, if Jesus is not the Son of God, I wouldn't pay too much attention. It's too much trouble. But if he is the Son of God, I would pay very serious attention. I would follow him. Because the risk of not doing so is frightening. Jesus says, follow me. I want to be your friend. It's your call. Well, let's pray. Well, let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. You speak to God and tell him where you are. Father, there are some of us here this morning who need to be convicted of sin. Who need to know that the alternative to following Jesus is frightening. Who need to know that God will hold us accountable whether we believe in him or not. Father, I pray that you will take away the hardness of heart and the blindness from our eyes. And cause us to call on you for mercy. Father, there are others of us here who sometimes think with that we will never be worthy for God. Who sometimes think I'm too much of a sinner, I'm too I'm too revolting, I'm too unclean. And we need to hear that call of Jesus. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, however deep it is, however bad it is, however repetitious it is, come to me and I will give you rest. So, Father, will you work amongst us supernaturally by your Spirit as you do? And will you convict us of our sin? Will you convict us of our need of God? Will you convict us of the identity of Christ, the Son of God, the one who longs to be in friendship with people like us? Amen.